you just tuned into the hippest way to start and grow your indie author career, learn the ins, the outs, and all the all-arounds of self-publishing with the team from D2D and their industry-influencing guests. You're listening to Self-Publishing Insiders with Draft2Digital. Hello and welcome to D2D Spotlight. My name is Mark Leslie Lefebvre and I am honored to have with me Jay Thorne. Jay, welcome to the D2D Spotlight. Thanks, Mark. This is really exciting. Yeah, this is going to be really, really cool. So I just showed those books, but I actually have the props handy, which I'm going to hold up. I have the, the three-story method. Whoops. I have the three-story method, a new book that you just co-wrote with uh, Zach Bohannon. And I have the workbook that you're selling for, you know, basically uh, cost. Cost, yeah. <laughs> so I want, before we get into that, I'm really excited to talk about the craft of writing because I think it's an amazing process. Let's go back and just talk a little bit about who Jay Thorne is and, and sort of your um, your work in the uh, writing community. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, try and make a long story short. Uh, I started writing, I, I read Stephen King's on writing sometime in the, in the aughts and uh and thought, okay, that's that's about all I need to know to to, to write a novel. So why not just start? And uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I think 2008, 2009, I published my first uh, titles on the brand new Kindle Direct Publishing platform. And uh, last year was my my tenth year. And uh, two or three years ago, I was able to make enough revenue from my writing and writing related services that I could leave my full time day job and uh, and do this. That is fantastic. And so uh, apart from being a writer, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm a, a fan of, of horror and the, the dark stuff that, uh, that you tend to write, uh, apart from being an author who writes the really fun, creepy stuff that I enjoy, you also do editing. Uh, you're a certified story grid editor. Correct. Yeah. Can you explain briefly what that is? Yeah, I had to run the gauntlet. I had to uh, stand in a robe and have Sean Coyne paddle me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> like a scene uh, out of Animal House. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Um, yeah, a few years ago, uh, shortly, I, I guess it was shortly after Sean first appeared on Joanna's show, The Creative Pen, which is where I first discovered StoryGrid. And I read the book and uh, it was just this light bulb went off for me. It was sort of the, the missing link. It was, it was the aspect of my craft that, that I was missing. Uh, I feel like I have a natural affinity towards storytelling, but having some type of, uh, of structure and, and story methodology was, you know, was, was priceless. And so when I saw that uh, Sean and along with Tim Grawl, his, his partner, were going to be offering StoryGrid certification. I think this was in the fall of 2017. I uh, hid the credit card for my wife, didn't tell her that I was charging, <laughs> charging it to that. Um, I, I just knew, like I knew it was going to pay off for me in, in many, many ways. And uh, not, not just from becoming a developmental editor and doing client work, but just from learning about the craft um, itself. And, and Sean was a mentor to me, is a mentor to me, is one of the smartest story guys I've ever met. And he, he has great lineage. I mean, he, he worked with Robert McKee. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's I, I don't regret it at all. I mean, it was it was fantastic. It was hard. Um, it's still hard, you know, because you have to stay, you have to stay current on it and you have to be constantly writing, constantly learning. But uh, it was probably the, the single biggest turning point in my writing career. Oh, that's fantastic. That is wonderful. So you've got the story grid background. You do work with authors and uh, using that um, to help them along. But then you and Zach Bohannon, who have been co-authors uh, for a number of years together, 
and and collaborators helping other authors. We will be talking to, to Zach tomorrow more about the collaboration. But I want to talk about something that you guys just released, which is called the three story method. And I think maybe because there's a I think there's a natural progression from story grid and some of the long in-depth research you've done going way back to philosophers right, and storytelling <laughs> that actually led to three story method. Can I hear a little bit about uh, that background? Yeah, sure. Uh when uh, you you know because you've you've attended our live events and one of our world building weekends and uh, pretty early on we were we were sort of retrofitting story grid principles to work on pre production and and we found it it just wasn't quite the right fit and and in full transparency uh, Sean never developed it to be sort of a story production or or plotting tool um, in, in fact the subtitle of story grid is what good editors know. <laughs> so it is, it's a fantastic process for revision, but it's really not designed to, to plan or, or to plot a, a title. Yeah, there well, it is. What good there's editors the problem, know, yeah. right? There's the subtitle. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think what, what naturally evolved is Zach and I, as we kept going through these, these world building events, and I was working with clients, I've worked with hundreds of clients by now since I was StoryGrid certified, and we realized that what you needed on the front end was different than what you needed on the back end. Now it's still grounded in a lot of the same principles that StoryGrid utilizes because we're all tapping the same source. Um, in, in the book, I talk about going back and rediscovering Aristotle's poetics and how so much of modern storytelling through Campbell and McKee and Coyne and, and everybody else has come through that, has come through that, that natural path. So we just adapted and modified uh, what we were doing in live events. We we were in a constant feedback feedback circle. We've run multiple events. I don't know, 12, 15 events at this point, something like that. And every time we do them, we would put these worksheets in front of people and we would say, how's this work for you? What's working? What's not? And that became the genesis of three-story method. And at one point, Zach said, you know what? We should we should like write this down. Like we should codify this. <laughs> and, and so, you know, people can use it. And, uh, and our, and our whole thing was like story just isn't that complicated. Like when, when you break it down, there are just certain core elements that Aristotle labeled first. He didn't even come up with them. Uh, and, uh, and it just, it's, it's pretty simple. Now it takes a lifetime to master, but the concepts themselves are just not that, that complicated. So what what are the, what's the, what what are the three? What's the, the 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 holy trinity in the case of storytelling? Yeah, the the holy trinity for three story method is conflict, choice, and consequence. Uh, so it, it super simple. And I know like I know a lot of times when I explain this to authors for the first time, they're like, "Well, duh!" Like, yeah, of course, right? Like it, right. it seems so obvious, but I can tell you. <laughs> Time and time again, especially at scene level work, when I work with authors, parts of these are missing. And, and it happens in my own work. I'll write something and then I look at it and I go, oh, that, that's not a really strong conflict. So here's what they are. The conflict is what Robert McKee would call the inciting incident. That right. is the, the first action that pushes your main character or your protagonist outside of their, their quote unquote normal routine and forces them to do something. All right. Now, this is uh, this is sort of like I'm talking about this at the scene level, but you can find these elements for um, uh, an act. You can find them for the for the whole novel or the entire story. So the conflict is the first thing that happens. That's what starts the scene. You need that to start it. Then the most important one is the choice, and it's just what it says. Right? You must 
force your protagonist to make a choice. Now, it doesn't have to be life or death or overly dramatic every time, but you want your protagonist to be taking an active role and because your reader is living vicariously through your protagonist. So they must be taking action of some kind. And then consequence is naturally the, the, the result of that choice that's made. And, uh, and you can do it in a way that the consequence will then set you up for the next conflict or the conflict in the next scene. Okay. That's really, really cool. Now there, there's a way I have, um, because I'm a, I'm a fan of your weekly, well, one of your 5,000 weekly podcasts, <laughs> but uh, one of the, one of them is the, uh, the career author podcast, uh, which I've been listening to since you guys launched it in January, 2018. And one of the ones that you've shared on that podcast and even spoken about in person at those uh, workshops is you always use Star Wars um, as, as a, as a source only because it's been out since the, what is it, the mid seventies. And, and a lot of people are at least familiar with it, even if they haven't seen the very, I mean, the very first, which is Star Wars episode four, the very right. first movie. <laughs> Can you just talk a little bit about that? Cause I think that really helps bring that home for people to understand. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I mean, it, it <laughs> bit of a gamble we knew it was a bit of a gamble because uh you know star wars is sci-fi and so there are a lot of genre uh authors and readers who might not be into science fiction right but one of the frustrations i i had and i researched dozens of books in three-story method in fact i in in the appendix i have a, a works cited page so anyone can go and, and and go deeper on any one of these methodologies that i learned from and one of the one of the things that was difficult for me as I was doing all this research was that I would come across examples in books of movies or, uh, or films or television shows or novels that I wasn't familiar with. And so there would be a whole passage about, well, here's a great example of a progressive complication when such and such does this. And I'm like, but I've never seen that movie. And like, you know, right. and I'm not going to stop and like go and watch a two hour movie and then come back and do that every time I hit one of these examples. So the idea was, what is, what's the most uh, common, maybe ubiquitous cultural touch point that we can find that, um, that everyone is at least familiar with? And if you haven't, then you could watch one two-hour movie and, and you would get all the references. So what we decided to do is, is for every example, and we cheated a little bit because we did use one other Star Wars film for The Virgin's Promise. But for the <laughs> most part, um, we kept all the references to one single movie. So as you read through three-story method, if you want to see how these principles play out within the methodology, all you got to do is watch Star Wars. And, and most people have seen it. If you haven't seen it, it's a two-hour investment, and then everything else will click into place for you. Okay. That is fantastic. So we talked a little bit about um, the collaboration that you do, and, and I wanted to kind of lean into this a little bit in terms of is writing independently? Uh, do you uh, do you approach that differently than than writing with a collaborator? And and obviously potentially you know applying three story method or or something like that to it. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, for me personally, uh, every time I start a new project, my process changes a little bit, uh, and it's because I, I I like to think I have a growth mindset. I think growth mindset is really important, and and. So what that means for me, and I'm referencing Carol Dweck's great book um, on mindset. And, right. you know, what, what a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset means is that I'm always learning. I'm always discovering new things. So even though the process might be generally the same, every time I start a new project, something I tweak something. I change something a little bit. 
I think that's a little harder to do with a collaboration. And, and I've done enough to say that, honestly, uh, it's hard. Um, it's great. Uh, and Zach and I love it. And we continue to do it. But collaboration is hard. And I, I think um, the if you've never collaborated on, on a large scale project, I think the assumption is, well, if you have two people, it's half as much work. And that math doesn't add up. <laughs> okay. uh, it's not half as much work. It's not. It's not as much maybe as as you know by yourself. But it's clearly not half the work. And part of that is because you have to over communicate. You know, if you are writing by yourself, and you sit down and you want to write a chapter, you don't really need to prep anything if you don't want to. You can open up a blank page and just start typing and see where you go. You can't do that with a collaboration. You, you, you have to fill in the other writer. They have to know where the story's going, where it's going to end up. So I think um, for writers who, uh, who need a little more structure, I think uh, collaboration is, is certainly built for that because uh, you know we, we discovered when we were in New Orleans with, uh, with Lindsay Broker and Joanna Penn, and we were doing the first authors on the train, and, uh, and, and we were all writing separate POVs, and we hit like this frustration point and, uh, and I remember Joanna's like, I'm going to bed. You will figure it out. And, and Zach and Lindsay and I sat down and kind of did a bulleted outline because we were just trying to kind of riff, riff through it. And with, with four of us writing that in one story, that was, it wasn't working. Okay. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. Now, the other uh, thing I want to get into, and I'd mentioned you had a number of podcasts. So obviously you work with uh, Zach on the Career Author Podcast, uh, with Rachel Heron on another uh, writer podcast. But then another one, which is kind of leads to the fact, so, you know, I know you as an indie author guy. However, you have a new podcast in which you are collaborating with a traditionally published author, and you've interviewed people like uh, James Patterson. And uh, like big name authors from yeah. traditional publishing, what's your stance on that that hybrid approach that that you're uh, you're embracing? Yeah, I've I, and there's nothing wrong with this, but I've never been the indie flag bearer. Uh, <laughs> I've never asked for that responsibility, I've, and I've never pursued it. I've always been more of an opportunist. So I believe for for most authors in most circumstances, I believe indie is probably the best path. But I, I can't I can't make a blanket statement and say, you know, it, it's what everyone should be doing. And Zach and I have talked about this on The Career Author, where we really believe it's a book-by-book -book decision. Uh, you don't have to fully commit to being an independent publisher, and you don't have to fully commit to being uh, querying agents. You Every book you write is a new opportunity, and, and you can take it, you can publish it yourself, or you can query agents and, and try a traditional path. So I think that's always been my approach is uh, I'm not a hybrid author. I, I don't have a traditional contract. I'd like to be. Uh, uh, I know I'm sacrificing royalties. I know I'm sacrificing control. But part of me wants to know if I can get past those gatekeepers. And I, it's, it's purely an ego play. I know exactly what I'm getting into. Um, <laughs> and, and I, but I think there's also there's advantages to being sort of very open about that. And JD Barker, who's my co-host on writers Inc. Um, you know, the podcast we're talking about, he is a very pure hybrid and he is a shrewd business guy. I'm learning yeah. so much from him. Like him and his agents will only sell certain rights to certain people in certain parts of the world. So, you know, he has very, he has traditional publishing deals with the big five and he's got movie options and he's got a lot of things going on, but he maintains a certain amount of control and, uh, and he still self-publishes as well. So I, I don't think it's an all or nothing or an either or kind of situation. I think 
uh, we always like to say, you know, we're authors, but we'll just write more words, you know, like we'll just write another book. Like that's what we do. Can you explain for people who maybe aren't familiar with this in terms of the split rights, in terms of uh, the way that it works in traditional publishing with territories and, you know, ebook versus print and audio and all that stuff? Yeah, all of those, all of those are separate licensing opportunities. So again, I don't have a ton of, I don't have any experience in that. You, you certainly have more experience than I do in, in regards to selling rights, but you can look at different aspects of your story. Um, so for example, you can sell print rights separate from ebook rights, separate from audiobook rights. And, and you know, we look around at, at, at some of our mentors and our heroes like Mark Dawson and Hugh Howie, who have masterfully navigated this and been able to sell uh, rights for certain mediums in certain places and kept some for themselves. And so, yeah, it's even more complicated than, than just indie versus traditional, because even if you go traditional, then you have, or indie, you have opportunities to sell only certain parts. So you could sell, you know, worldwide paperback distribution outside the U.S., but you could maintain that um, as, as independent. Like that's, that's an option. Now, you know, you have to negotiate those deals with, with publishers. And if you have great agents, the way Hugh and, and Mark and JD have, then, then you can do that. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Oh, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. So um, I popped back up the website, theauthorlife.com, which is a, a, a project that you've put together, which is almost like a, a look in the life, uh, look me at, at Jay Thorne and the author, the author life. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what people can expect if they check it out? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's very similar to the career author and that, you know, my goal is to help turn struggling writers into career authors. Uh, so it's about the lifestyle. It's, uh, it's about craft. It's about marketing. It's about publishing. It's what it means to be a self-sustaining um, creative artist in 2020. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, there are blog posts there, there are resources, there are author services, um, and I, I realize it's relatively new. I've only had this website, I only developed this website a few years ago because um, Joanna told me like, you don't really have a home <laughs> for, for, <laughs> for nonfiction or for author services. She's like, you need, you need something. And, and I have a fiction website, but you know, that's for readers of dark fantasy and horror and post-apocalyptic fiction. And, you know, uh, aspiring authors are not going to find that. So, um, <laughs> so that was the genesis of it. And uh, a, a lot of I, I did a, a blog post and podcast episode every week last year. Uh, this year, I decided to do the monthly, but go sort of deeper into a topic. Uh, so whenever I write a blog post, I also narrate it and push it out as a podcast episode. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. And I just, uh, we're going to be getting to questions from the uh, people who are viewing in the next little while, but I thought I'd pop up this comment because it was a little apropos. Uh, Jamie said, so excited, big fan of Jay Thorne, as, Thanks, as we all are. <laughs> you should watch his video on his website. He gives great advice. So see, we're not, you're not just hearing it from us, you're hearing it <laughs> from Jamie as well. <laughs> Yeah, there's a uh, and there, there's also a free guide if you go to theauthorlife.com right at the top above the fold. It's uh, it's a free guide on how to self-publish. So um, it, I wrote it up as again, it's one of those things. I, I'm a big systems process guy, and I realized there were certain things that I would do every time I was writing and marketing and publishing a book. And I said, you know what? I'll just write this up and then and give that to people. And and hopefully, uh, if you're looking for a place to start, or even if you have a system and want to improve it you can go ahead and grab that free guide and uh, that'll help you out. Okay, cool. Now you have been, uh, you've been writing full-time for two years. 
Two and a half? Uh, it's, it's three years this spring. Three, three yeah. years. Wow. Okay, cool. Uh, now, I, I think I'm familiar uh, with your space because I've heard you talk about it on some of the podcasts. But can you explain... Um, how you you work from home? So right now, a lot of people are working from home. Yes. <laughs> we didn't plan on it, but it's happening. Uh, do you divide up your day? Do you divide up your space? How do you do? Like because you do editing work, because you do one-on-one -on -one consultations with authors, because you do podcasts, because you do writing. Do you divide up your space uh, differently and your day? I divide up. I divide up my day, not necessarily my space. Uh, so if if you're if you're watching this on a video platform, um, what you're seeing is my third floor attic. That uh, this was a house. This is a house in a suburb of Cleveland that was built in the early 1900s. And uh, when I bought it 10, 10 or so years ago, uh, there, it had a walk up attic. And uh, my dad and I came up, and it was unfinished. And I couldn't believe no one had utilized this space in decades that the people have been living in this house. So we spent um, a good couple months um, finishing it. And I, from, from the very beginning, it was meant to be a working studio for me because uh, I'm a musician. I was in bands at the time. I was writing. My kids were very young. <laughs> they were probably two and four. Um, and, I knew, and I needed some separation. So this space kind of became my, my work studio. And, and now it's where I spend most of my time. So uh, I sit at this desk whenever I'm doing my writing, my client work, my podcasting. This is, this is the environment that tells my brain, this is where work gets done. So I don't lounge here. I don't Netflix binge here. Uh, there's a couch there. I don't even read on that unless I'm reading client work because I want to train my brain that this oh, is where wow. work happens. Okay. Yeah. So you're reading a manuscript with uh, an author that you're working with, but you're not reading for pleasure. No, no. I, I go downstairs and in a family room or in my chair or something if, if I, if I want to be entertained. This is, this is strictly for work. Um, okay. And then as far as my day goes, I've, ex I've experimented with a lot. Um, I'm a big fan of calendaring and journaling. I think the way Joanna Penn does it. And, um, and so what I've gotten to now is to a point where I block time. So this might be really relevant for people who have been on uh, self-quarantine or, or, or staying home. What I try to do is I try and batch big blocks of time. So I'm doing pretty much the same type of activity for the entire day or for half the day. So for example, uh, on Mondays, Monday is my podcasting day. I don't write any, I don't first draft any words on Mondays. I don't do any client work on Mondays. Mondays is strictly, it's um, interviewing guests for Writers Inc. Or it's recording the career author podcast, or it's editing the writers well, or it's writing up show notes, it's scheduling. Um, it's all of that stuff on Monday. And that's the only day I do that. Tuesday is my big first drafting day. So on Tuesdays, I'll, I'll check some basic email messages first thing in the morning, and I don't check it again until at, at the end of the day. And the whole day on Tuesday is just first drafting. It could be one project. It could be multiple projects. But what I try and do is I try and eliminate the switching costs that take place. So when you have your brain working on one type of task and you switch it to another, you lose some momentum. You and I'm sure there's a scientific word for it, but uh, you, you lose a little bit of focus and you lose some time. So rather than bouncing from podcasting to emailing to checking my list to my Facebook ads, I, I try and batch uh, similar or same activities in big blocks. And I'm aware that you are also um, 
uh, a prepper, not a prepper in terms of the apocalypse, <laughs> even though you do write apocalyptic fiction, but I'm talking about prepping things in advance, right? Like your, yeah. your clothes uh, for workout or your lunches and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about how that saves you time? Yeah, this is this is really something um, I'd strongly recommend James Clear's Atomic Habits if people are interested in, in this approach. But the idea is that you make these very small incremental changes and you systematize them so that you don't have to think about them. Because what happens is throughout the course of the day, every decision you make um, is is drawn from your bank of, of energy reserves. And, and that's why by the end of the day, you're, you're not your, your best decision-making uh, prowess, right? Uh, there, there's one, there was one famous study talking about um, uh, judges. And judges after lunch have harsher sentences and conviction rates than they do before lunch because they, <laughs> they get tired as the day goes on. So I, rather than fight biology, uh, I, I go with it. So what I will do, for example, is rather than getting up and thinking, okay, what am I going to do today? Before I go to bed that night, I will put my workout clothes and my gym membership card and my car keys right beside the door. And I pack it up and it's ready to go. My water bottle is filled. So when I get up in the morning, I don't have to think, I don't have to use calories. I don't have to burn decisions about where are my clothes? Where's my water? Well, I can't find my keys. I just grab it and I go. And for me not to do that, it, I have to be very deliberate in not going. So that's, there's a misconception that you need willpower and, and willpower then will create these systems. What James Clear says, it's the opposite. If you put the systems in place, that's what builds your willpower. So for me, to skip a workout in the morning is really hard because everything's lined up to point me in that direction. So I have to make a conscious decision not to do it. And that's a whole lot harder to do. <laughs> well, I have to thank you because um, you, uh, through through your various podcasts, you've recommended so many amazing books, including <laughs> Atomic Habits by Cleary. Uh, I'm thinking of Cal Newport. I've read a couple of his books because of you guys. And, uh, and there's yeah. more. <laughs> there's more. Um, I, I have to uh, pop up this other uh, question. Oh my God, is <laughs> that Jay Thorne? Yes, it is Jay Thorne, and is he's here to answer. From Roland? Yeah, <laughs> imagine that. He's here to answer your questions. I am going to start in the questions a little bit early, uh, if that's okay. I'm going to yeah. kind of dig back through some of the early ones. So, uh, VJ says, "I found that outlining the novel with midpoint and pinch points hampers." You can probably hear the dog in the background going nuts because <laughs> someone's. Someone always comes to the door when I'm doing a live podcast. Sorry. <laughs> he said pinch points hampers the creative process, especially in mysteries. What's your opinion about this? Oh, that's a that's a tough question. Um, I would say my recommendation, uh, this this sounds this sounds like a plug. I'm not meant to do this. But this wasn't planned. But in three-story method, what we talk about are uh, sort of the the twelve the twelve core stages of a story. And this corresponds directly to, uh, yeah, the, the 12 stages of the hero's journey. Thanks, Mark. Uh, holding up the book there. Um, it, but but the, the whole idea is that you have these sort of tent posts or these mile markers that, that you want to hit. So I wonder if it will be helpful to him if maybe if stepping up a level and not worrying about sort of these midpoint, these, these smaller nuanced places, but look at those 12 overarching scenes and make sure you're hitting those. Because those are the ones that, as you look in Hero's Journey, uh, every Hero's Journey archetypal story has those in it. But they have a whole lot of other stuff, too. But if you hit those, that, that's what people are looking for subconsciously. 
So cool. I would say come up a level um, on that and, and maybe examine those 12 stages first. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to bring up a question from Lexi. Uh, Lexi asks, what is the biggest lesson as a writer that you've learned by being an editor? <laughs> oh, great question. Uh, the biggest lesson I've learned uh, as a writer is that I can't be my own editor. Uh, <laughs> I, I, now, I didn't believe that for very long, but I've um, early on, I thought, I mean, I'm a writer. I know how to put words together. Like, how hard could editing be? Well, editing is so difficult um uh, and and it's almost impossible to see your own work objectively um i mean just physiologically your eyes will scan over things that you've seen a number of times that other people aren't going to see but more importantly and i'm not talking just about punctuation and grammar and typos but the story itself i think that's where an editor is is worth their money and a, a good editor is not someone who's just cleaning up your your, your grammar, your punctuation, but a good editor is pointing out problems with your story, problems with pacing, problems with characterization. And so I think for me, it's, it's been reinforcing to know that, um, that, un, the, that just like other storytelling industries, um, music, movies, television, th those, those all require teams. And I think uh, the good writing requires that as well. So uh, I, I never skimp on an editor. I, I don't even so much as publish a blog post without hiring my professional editor to, to edit it. So that, I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. Excellent. And I think I just want to reiterate this sort of the distinction is you're not, you're not just talking about somebody to proofread your, your work. You're talking about like developmental or substantial editing, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Story editing, content editing, developmental editing. Okay. There's different, there's different variations and people have different labels, right. but um, I think what's important is that you want to, you want to have an editor uh, who understands story structure and can help you improve it. And I make this joke a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I always say that, uh, you know, your aunt Helen, who, who had a, graduated with a degree in English from, from state college in 1979 might be a, a wonderful, uh, you know, early reader for you, but probably not an editor, uh, you know, within reason, within your budget, I think you want to find someone who is, who is constantly looking at stories all day long, every day from many different people, because I think they're going to have the best perspective on how to help you become a better storyteller. Okay. So to that end, I thought I would ask this question in case people have it is the difference between an editor and an early reader or a beta reader? Yeah. So sometimes, uh, especially in the indie world, we, we have these, we have this terminology that we use. So we, we have editors, uh, and editors are, are, are just what you think they are, right? Editors are, are going through your manuscript and they're, uh, they're looking for story problems. If, if it's a line editor, they're looking for typos and grammar and spelling, that sort of thing. Uh, you have what's called beta readers. So, so beta readers, and, and some authors will use beta readers as editors. I don't think that's a solid practice. I don't do it personally, but I know that some people have success with it. But a beta reader is where the author will do the best job that they can on the manuscript. And then they'll send that manuscript to a dozen or a few dozen quote unquote beta readers. And those readers will give the author feedback. I think that can be valuable. I think um, one of the problems you run into with, with beta readers is you get a lot of opinion. So I think yeah. it's, it's hard to sift through, you know, I've had beta, I've used beta readers before and I'll have one beta reader say, Oh, this character felt completely unnatural. And someone else will say, I love that character. They were my favorite. It's like, you know, what do you do with that? They were the so, most natural character in the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right. So, uh, so that's beta readers. 
Now, an ARC reader or advanced review copy, this is when your book is ready to be published and, and, and you want to get a, a preview copy out to someone in hopes that once the book publishes, they'll leave a review. So an, an ARC reader might find something uh, wrong or might make, make a suggestion, but in theory, by the time you're sending out ARCs, your book is pretty much done. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you. That was awesome. That was a fantastic breakdown of all of those things. So uh, <laughs> we're going to bring up another question. This one is from Jamie. Uh, Jamie says, is it good to write in all kinds of genres or is it a good idea to stick with just one? Great question, Jamie. Uh, I think it really depends. And, and I know that sounds like I'm punting on this, <laughs> but it, it really depends on where you are in your author journey and what you want out of it. So for example, Let's say you are in a period right now where you like, I, ha I have four weeks at home. I'm going to crank out as much content as I can. I want to make a go at this of selling my, my fiction for money. Maybe, maybe this is the time for me to make that transition. So if you, let's say you're looking for immediate, fast royalties. That's, that's what your goal is. Well, much like uh, Craig Martell and, and, uh, and Anderle do in, in the 20 books to 50K model, your, your approach would be, write a lot, write, write fast, publish it fast, uh, and do that in a, not only in a single genre, but in a single series, right? So in that case, you would, would want to be doing rapid release. You'd want to be writing quickly, maybe, maybe shorter books. Um, get that, get that read-through go going in the series so that if you advertise on book one, you're going to get ROI all the way through, seven, eight, nine, ten books through, right? So in that case, you want to be hyper-focused. Like you want to make sure you're, like I said, not writing just a single genre, but even a single series. You want to be really targeted on that. But that's just, that's just one example, right? Maybe you're in a situation where you really enjoy what you do uh, for a, a full-time living and you have no intention on leaving that, but you love to write. And so you write, say, a book a year, a book every other year, and you really care about writing um, a really interesting story, maybe something that's a little bit unique, maybe that's something sort of across genre, and maybe it's something you want to get in front of an agent. Maybe you think it has Hollywood potential. In that case, your approach is completely different. You might be looking at writing a standalone book. You might be writing in different genres because you're not depending on rapid release income. Um, you, have, you have your income. Um, you're, you're sustaining your lifestyle. And really what you're doing here is you're, you're being very focused on, um, say, learning your craft or something like that. So those are probably two ends of a very wide spectrum. But I, So I think the answer to the question that Jamie asked is it, it just depends on what you want and where you are in, in your journey. Um, I will say that once you've established yourself in a particular genre, if you want to continue to sell books, um, you're better off sticking with that genre or writing in a genre that's somewhat similar to it. So uh, I know you've done this too, Mark. Like I, I started out writing more more traditional horror, and I sort of uh, evolved into writing more post-apoc dystopian, which is technically a sci-fi subgenre. But the reader for horror and the reader for post-apoc, especially for you know zombie apocalypse, like. They're, they're pretty close. So it yeah. wouldn't be like if I was writing horror and then decided to write uh, cozy mysteries. 
Excellent. Thank you. That's great. I'm going to take a slightly different turn here with this question, which is from Tori. Tori asks, with the advent of audio and AI, artificial intelligence, do you think uh, an author should copyright or trademark or license their voice specifically and separately from the written IP? Now, I say this because I know you are a, a voice actor, a professional voice actor, because you you did record uh, Three Story Method, the audio, right, yourself. Yeah, uh, and so it's ACX gets on there gets on their toes, uh, maybe that'll be out, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question, uh, Tori. I, there, there's sort of two thoughts I have on that question. The first one is, uh, I don't think you necessarily have to worry too much about licensing your voice IP early on. Like right. if you don't have anything published yet or you, or you haven't really even begun voice acting or recording or podcasting or narrating audiobooks, there really isn't anything for you to license. That being said, uh, I think licensing is is extremely important, and I think it's something especially indies are starting to pay much more attention to. Uh, I recently did an interview with um, an entertainment attorney who lives out in L.A. for the Writers, Inc., and, uh, and the way he described it to me, which was fantastic, was that even with your written word, um, what you want to be able to do is you're technically licensing your own work to yourself. Um, and that, that gives you a layer of protection. So if let, let's say, Mark, you know, you, you do something and someone comes and sues you and you're publishing just uh, as, a, as a single person, you don't have an LLC or an S corp or anything like that. Um, then within they can go after your assets and your intellectual property is part of your assets. So they, they could, in theory, sue for your books and then publish them and, and, and get the royalties. So if you have an LLC or some type of legal entity, what you can do is you, as a person, license the publication rights to your yeah. company, and yeah. that gives you a layer of protection. So I'm not an attorney or, <laughs> or, or a tax guy. I'm only relaying what, what information I've heard. But right. um, all of that goes to say, to answer Tori's question, is you should be considering all of your IP and thinking about ways of licensing it either to yourself or to other people, other companies. It's, it's an excellent uh, thought. And I know neither one of us is a legal professional, but I know uh, Dean Wesley Smith, who I had on uh, yesterday uh, on this uh, lunchtime chat. Uh, I know that Dean and Chris, who run their own publishing company, have done that. They actually get paid. They license their works to their own publishing company that someone else runs <laughs> and then they get paid for it. Yeah. Uh, and then that separates them. So that's great. So yes. um, I'm going to take, because you've written nonfiction and fiction and all kinds of stuff. Uh, there's a question from Lynn here and Lynn says, so she has a, a bunch of audio files and blog posts and articles about divorce recovery. And she's often wondered if she could bring them all together cohesively and design a book or a healing guide of some sort, because I mean, you talked about earlier on, uh, that's exactly how the three-story method came. As you and Zach were talking, you're like, we, sh we should write this down. <laughs> and then it became the book. Yeah, absolutely, Lynn. You should definitely do that. Uh, one of the things you have to remember is, is people will pay for convenience. So on, on the surface, like uh, let's talk about blog to book. That's a good example, right? That, that, is, um, that is when you write a series of blog posts and over time, you build up enough that you can then compile those blog posts into a book. and what, what people immediately think is, well, why would someone pay for a book when, when the blog is free? And the reason is convenience. Like, are you going to sit down at the computer and are you going to go and read every blog post over, say, the course of two years, one at a time? Or would you rather 
sit down on your couch with your e-reader or your book and, and read um, the way you do everything else. So don't underestimate people's willingness to pay for convenience. Uh, it's also a great way to repurpose content. One, one of the great things about the blog to, uh, to book approach, podcast to book approach, uh, any recordings that you have, is you've been able to hopefully, or you can get feedback on them. So you can look and see, you know, which blog posts or episodes do people comment on the most, which ones were listened to or read the most. Uh, if you're posting blog posts on Medium, you can you can see analytics on, you know, how much people have been reading and, and uh, how far they've read. And so you can use that to then decide, okay, this is the content that's really resonating with people. That's what I'm going to include. So you should absolutely then repurpose your content. Uh, and you can always add stuff to it. You can rewrite things. But I would start by gathering it all together. And if you have any analytics on any of that content, start going through it and just making some general notes on what are the pieces or the posts or, or the essays that are really connecting with people and, uh, and start with those as your core. Cool. Awesome. I mean, that's exactly how I've written several books that I didn't intend to. Uh, a couple podcast episodes turned into a book on working with libraries and bookstores, which were two separate podcasts. Yeah. It was going to be a, an article and it kind of blew up. Yeah. So, I thought so. the seven piece started that way too, right? Uh, same, same idea. It was going to be a chapter in a book yeah. and it became its own little, little book. So yeah, you never know what happens uh, once you start putting those things together. The three story method and the workbook could come out of it, right? Yeah. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> so Mikey asks, um, do you have any tools that you use to organize tasks, especially for your podcasts? Uh, mm. I love podcasting, but I find the organizational uh, side becomes a hurdle. Yeah, Mikey, um, that's a that's a great question. Um, generally speaking, I rely on Google Calendar for just about everything. Um, I've tried all different systems and everything, you know, Kanban boards and, and Asana and Todoist and Trello and everything. I, I've, I've tried them all. Um, but, and I think this is, this is partially because of my age. So I, I had to organize my life before there was an internet. And least, <laughs> you may remember this, Mark, we had these things called day runners, right? Yes. These little <laughs> calendars, right? And I used to, I remember as a student in both high school and college, I, I had a day runner and everything went in my calendar. Um, everything from like doctor's appointments to tests that I had to study for, groceries I had to pick up, it was all in one place. So I think what happened was I developed this habit and it naturally flowed over when the internet came along. And with Google Calendar, and especially now with smartphones, I can have my Google Calendar on the home screen of my smartphone, I have it on my computer, any other device I have, as soon as I add a task or an event or something, it's automatically populated everywhere else. Um, back in the day, I lost my day runner a few times and that was brutal. <laughs> you know, when, when you lose, like paper journals are great, but if you lose them or spill coffee on them, they're gone, you know? Um, so I rely heavily on, on Google Calendar. I have, I probably have seven or eight Google Calendars um, and I color code them. So I can easily toggle on and off. Like if I just want to see my first drafting calendar, it's a click. If I want to see just my podcasting interviews, it's just a click. And, and my, I share calendars with my wife, with my kids, with my virtual assistant, with my partners. So like my entire life, I can see in one screen at one time. And, it, and, and Google Calendar is free. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to beat that. Um, as far as organization goes for podcasts specifically, 
I'm a big, big, big fan of templates. I create templates for everything, for show right. notes, for episodes. I'm sure you do this too, Mark. I have a, I have a, an, uh, I use Reaper uh, as an audio production tool just because I used it in bands for so many years. And I create templates for every one of my podcasts. So whenever right. I'm done with the writers, uh, when I'm getting ready to record the Writers Inc., I just pop it open and hit record. And then I, I just have to edit the, the raw files and export. But like the, you know, the intro music, the call to action at the end, like all that stuff is already set in place. So I think is, if you can create as many templates as you can for, for podcasting or blogging, and just, you're just dropping stuff in there, that's going to that's gonna help you out uh, organizationally. And I think uh, for other Jay Thorne advice that I've taken to heart is it's the uh, it's the process or it's the systems you set up for success, right? Yeah, that's it. I mean, I don't want to have to think about dumb stuff, right? Like I, <laughs> I almost said a bad word, but like I don't want to I don't want to yeah. have to think about things like that, right? Like a calendar is super simple. And and uh, Zach and I, you could ask Zach about his to do list because we differ on this. He's a big fan of to do lists. The, the reason I'm not a big fan of to do lists is because I need to see the time element for me. So like I, when I have my, my calendar default viewing is by the week. I like to see everything that I'm going to do in one week, where it fits in relation to everything else. And that's not easily done with a to-do list. Um, and then with a click, I can also look at a month view or I can really zero in and look at just that day. So it gives me a lot of flexibility in how I, I'm looking at what I'm doing, um, not only just how I organize it. Excellent. Well, Jay, thank you so much. So much amazing advice uh, for people here. I know we have, uh, I think the authorlife.com is where people can hear from you or yeah. find out more about you. Where else is that a good there. place to start? Yep. Excellent. Well, thanks for hanging out with me, answering these great questions. Thank you, uh, live uh, viewers uh, and listeners for, uh, for asking some great questions. Jay, hope you have a, a wonderful day. You too, Mark. Thanks for inviting me here. This was a lot of fun. That's it for this week's Self-Publishing Insiders with Draft to Digital. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with your will-be author friends. And start, build, and grow your own self-publishing career right now at draft2digital.com.